Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Marion Turner, author of the book The Wife of Bath, a biography. Marion, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Um, So I am the J.R.R. Tolkien Professor of English Literature at the University of Oxford. And for most of my career, I've been publishing and thinking about Chaucer and other medieval writers. And I think that what I'm really passionate about in trying to communicate about medieval literature and culture is to get across both the the familiarity and the difference, you know, the importance of studying the past and seeing what's the same, what's relevant, what's accessible, but also of making imaginative leaps into the past and the value of trying to think ourselves into different worlds and different perspectives. I was thinking that you make that very plain in your book because you show how relevant the character is. I I must confess, when I started reading it, I was thinking this was going to be a fascinating book about a medieval figure. And yet you demonstrate in your book just how contemporary she is, how she is a a figure who's very much with us today, uh, still is very prominent in so much modern literature. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true on a couple of different levels. It's really interesting how how influential she herself is. The fact that, you know, while I was writing this book, Zadie Smith, one of the most important contemporary authors writing today, wrote and premiered a play, which is a direct, you know, translation adaptation of The Wife of Bath. That play is called The Wife of Wilsdon. It's the last text that I that I talk about. So that kind of direct influence is true. But it's also true that a lot of the issues that the wife of Bath raises and talks about are still relevant today. And I think it's very sobering for a lot of people when they realize that, okay, it's not just in the last century that people started saying, wow, there aren't so many books by women as there are by men. There have been structural problems for women in getting their voices heard. Um, People don't always write in fair ways about victims or think enough about domestic abuse, that actually these things have been talked about for hundreds and hundreds of years, and yet there hasn't always been the kind of change that we might want to see. So a lot of these issues around misogyny, um, feminism, anti-feminism have been kind of kicked around but not progressed very much for a, for a very long time. So, I mean, we, you've, we've already just covered how re- relevant the character is, and yet the idea of doing a biography uh, of a fictional character <laughs> is a, a, a very, you know, fascinating concept. What led you to undertake uh, a, a book like this? Yeah, so as you, as you know, um, my previous book was a more straightforward biography. It was a biography of Chaucer, Chaucer, A European Life. And I really enjoy life writing, thinking about biography, and the idea of writing about a character was both that it lets me do something really experimental and it allowed me to cross time. So to think about both the medieval and the modern, to think about her influence. So to do this kind of um, you know, cross temporal study that I found very exciting. But also I wanted to write about medieval women. And writing about this character really allowed me to write a, a kind of composite biography because the first half of the biography looks at different aspects of the wife of Bath 
as a character and compares them to lots and lots of real medieval women. So it allowed me to tell lots and lots of stories about women that have been neglected, ignored, you know, not really known about. And a lot of them are, you know, completely fascinating. So I really enjoy being able to kind of excavate the stories of these women, to tell the story of the 15th century duchess who married four times and her final husband was a teenager, although she was 65. The story of Marjorie Kemp, the the writer of her maid, who travelled with her employer and then got sick of got sick of her job, left her employer, went and got a much better job in Rome, where she became a cellarer, the person in charge of all the wine and the food at this really large kind of hotel hospice. You know, she bettered herself, she took risks, you know, she may not have been that nice a person in what she did abandoning her employer, but she had an interesting life. And there are so many stories to tell about medieval women that people really don't know about. And this was in some ways an opportunity to think about those women and to think about about the intersections between life and literature, between um, what we might think of as fact and fiction, because often we can actually learn a lot about the past through fiction, and a lot of factual narratives turn out to be quite fictionalised in many ways. I think I'm very interested in thinking about that intersection. Um, if I could just go on a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, please do. There's... Um, in the Wife of Bath's own prologue, and, and if we remember, this is a late 14th century text. It's a long time ago. She writes about the fact that, um, or she talks really, she talks about the fact that her husband keeps reading these books that say terrible things about women. And she thinks about these books as a book of wicked wives, a book, just collection of misogyny. And that book becomes the occasion for domestic violence. So her husband reads that book. It makes him think that all women are terrible. She tries to attack the book and then her husband hits her, knocks her over. She becomes deaf, partly deaf as a result. And at almost exactly the same time as Chaucer was imagining this fictional scene in which reading fictional texts has a real effect on a woman's body, almost exactly the same time, a writer, a female writer, Christine de Pizan, recounted a historical a historical anecdote about a woman whose husband was reading the contemporary misogynist text, The Romance of the Rose, and after reading that text, he beat his wife, he abused his wife. So I think these are really important examples of the fact that what people read in fictional books affects how they, beha- how they behave in life, that fiction has a real effect on history, on historical bodies, on what happens to people, and that we need to take fiction you know, very seriously, because it really does, it has serious effects. We all orient our understanding of the world partly through our imaginations, through what we read in fiction, and that affects what we believe, which is a real responsibility. One of the fascinating things that you point out about uh, Alice in the Bath, which I, I must confess I didn't really appreciate until I read your book, was that she's not the first woman in English literature, but she's the first ordinary woman. And that was just something that I, I just had to think about in, in terms of my limited understanding of uh, knowledge of English literature. And I, and I realized just how profound that is. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon you know, why that's so significant and, and how that gives us that perspective you're talking about in a way that the uh, the, the previous the women previously featured in English uh, literature uh, up until that point did not. Absolutely. So women in literature before this point 
they can, there are a variety of types, but you get damsels in distress, princesses, queens, those kind of idealized kinds of women. You also get religious women such as nuns. You also get stereotypical, you know, terrible women. So whores, witches, old crones, bawds, you know, procuresses. So these these extreme types of women, you don't ever see before the wife of birth a woman who is ordinary. And by ordinary, I mean, she's a working woman. She's a, a, a woman who is married, who has sex, who talks about enjoying sex, who has friends, talks to her friends. Um, she, she makes a lot of mistakes. She drinks a bit too much. She gossips. But essentially, she is a she's a woman that many people can identify with across time. You know, she ages. She's not some kind of, she's not frozen in a perfect youth the way that, you know, so many heroines are. She's not a kind of terrible, terrible stereotype. She has a bad side and she has a good side. You know, she's a mixed character. But to put into a text a woman who, who works and is sexually active is completely revolutionary at the time. Um, and she's an older woman as well. And as we know, across time, people have generally not wanted to give older women voice in texts or in films more recently um, or on TV. They haven't wanted to do that unless they've been making them into the kind of old crone witch type figure. So it's not only that Chaucer creates this very different figure and, she, and the sources that she's based on by the way tend to be old prostitutes the main source is an old prostitute and Chaucer has changed her into a, a larger than life but respectable married woman not only that he does that is that he gives her a deeper and more complex subjectivity and sense of self and a more powerful voice than he gives to any of his other pilgrim characters. So in the Canterbury Tales, he introduces lots and lots of pilgrim characters. Um, they all get a little opportunity to talk a bit about themselves if they want to in, in what are known as the prologues before their tales. Most of those prologues are very short. Three of them are longer. So the other two, which are the, the other two longer ones are, you know, a couple of hundred lines. The Wife of Bath's prologue, in which she talks about her own life, is over 800 lines. So it's not just that she talks a bit more. She talks dramatically, you know, four times more than anyone else about her own life, her background, her sense of self. So in that prologue, she has developed more as a character than anyone else. She is in some ways not only the first ordinary woman character, but the first character character you know the first developed character the kind of precursor to the to the people who give soliloquies the precursor to the characters in the novel with more developed um subjectivities in later centuries she talks a lot about her own life her experience her marriages the problems she's had domestic abuse um and she also shows in that discussion that she that she has an understanding of temporality of the past of the future of her memory and she's also extremely funny. You know, her voice is so memorable and has been so memorable for people, you know, since the moment of her conception. It's so memorable partly because it is, it's quirky, it's amusing. She laughs at herself. She doesn't take herself too seriously. You know, she's just a really, her voice is very appealing. And even when you know what she's saying is, um, is really, you know, inappropriate in all kinds of ways, she still tends to make you laugh. And I think that's one of the major reasons why people have have kept being drawn to her across time. And it's fascinating what you do in the first half of your book because you use 
all that Chaucer writes about, all, all this you know investment that uh, we we get from her in the text to really you know explore more deeply the lives of medieval women as you were describing, and you do it in various ways that I thought were especially interesting. I was wondering if you could start by talking to us a bit more about working women in the Middle Ages and, and, and how Allison's uh, fictional life, you know, shed light upon the very real lives uh, of women at that time. So, yeah, people often assume that there weren't many working women until maybe industrialization, or some people might think even even later. But in fact, many, many women worked in the Middle Ages and in in England, many women were undertaking paid work, and this was happening at all levels of society. It also increased after the plague. So Chaucer was born just a few years before the Black Death hit, and that was, of course, the by far the worst pandemic that the world has ever known. And after that pandemic, which wiped out maybe a third, maybe a half of the population, you know, it's incredibly dramatic and, and appalling. Um, after that catastrophe, the same amount of land, of course, still needed to be worked, the same amount of labor needed to be done, but there were half as many people maybe to do it. So wages went up, more women entered the workforce, more women moved to towns, for example. In other parts of Europe, they dealt with this problem differently. So in Italy, for example, they imported a lot of slaves. That's not what happened in Northwest Europe. Instead, you know, wage earners did, did well after the plague and were able to earn more money, have more opportunities. So we see women doing a whole range of work. So most commonly they worked in the kind of food and drink providing trades, you know, as victuallers, as brewers, that kind of thing, or in um, or in trades to do with cloth making, you know, weaving, silk women, those kinds of jobs. Um, but we also see them sometimes doing really surprising things. We see, um, for example, a female skinner who took over her husband's business um, skinning animals and preparing skins for all kinds of things, you know, such as robes or clothes, those kinds of things. She took over his business. She employed apprentices. She left a lot of money in her will and left some of that money to women as well as to other relatives. Um, we hear about female ship owners, female scribes, female blacksmiths, all, all kinds of things. At the Around the lower end of the scale, a lot of women worked in domestic service. At the top end of the scale, women who were married to important important landowners would often themselves take a major role in running the estate and if they were widowed they might take it over entirely so Chaucer's own granddaughter for example became a duchess and was a widow for decades and she hugely expanded her landowning you know fought off lots of um, attempts to to take land off her and ended up a really major landowner um and was was really, you know, a, a very successful businesswoman. I mean, going back to the bottom end of the scale, although we might generally think that, you know, entering domestic service might not seem you know, very appealing to most people. But in fact, it was quite a liberating thing for a lot of um, a lot of women in the Middle Ages, because instead of staying in their family home and working doing the domestic work of the house unpaid for their fathers and then for their husbands, they could go and earn money so they could get away from the control of their parents. They could enter another household. They could earn money for themselves, which then meant that they had more control over their choice of husband, for example. They weren't being married off young by their fathers, as was happening in many other societies at this time. Most commonly, people would marry more, you know, 
in their 20s rather than as young teenagers, although the wife of Bath is married at 12. But in historical society, they would tend to marry a bit later, therefore have fewer children, therefore have more opportunities to to work and to support their children to enter apprenticeships, to make their own money. So working women were a really important part of the economy in the 14th century. And it was something that 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 economic independence was something that also helped those women to be able to make their own marriage choices often and to retain a certain amount of independence in all aspects of their life. And that is something that I think is so important across time that really women have to have economic independence if they are to have control over other aspects of their life. That, that question of marriage is another one that, that features very prominently uh, in your analysis. And that's one of the things that we is, is such a, a central issue for, for women in the Middle Ages. I mean, the, it's it, it, practically every level that determines so much about their lives. And as you demonstrate, you know, it, it's it's so central to Alison's story in the, in, in the Canterbury Tales. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that many people know about the wife of Bath is that she is married five times. And when she goes on this pilgrimage, she says she's, you know, welcome the sixth. You know, she's looking for another husband. Um, And, you know, the story of her prologue is partly the story of those different marriages. So this is, of course, extreme, the idea of marrying five times. But it's not bizarre either in the, the Middle Ages or today. You know, that, that does happen. Sometimes people do have, have several spouses at, at times. And you, one of the things that we see in the Wife of Bart's prologue is she talks about the fact that the church at the time was against multiple marriages. You know, the, the, the church fathers, so the people who've written authoritative tracts in late antiquity, people such as St. Jerome, you know, were very much against well, marriage altogether and certainly more than one marriage and criticised women for getting married more than once. But just as today that, to most of us, would seem to be quite an odd attitude, it would also have seemed very odd to the wife of Bart's audience, to Chaucer's contemporaries, because in his day, people did not think it was strange to marry more than once. You know, they would have looked at the kinds of texts that are kind of being wielded against Alison of Bath, that they would have seen those texts as old-fashioned, as silly. You know, they're a thousand years old by that by that time and were written in very specific circumstances. Whereas Chaucer's world, in Chaucer's world, everyone was entirely used to, you know, women such as the ones that I write about in this book. So, you know, women such as... Um, there's one woman that I write about who was married four times. Um, she was a very wealthy woman in medieval London. She was Lady Mayoress twice, for example. She was then a widow for a long time. She inherited a lot of money. She was really able to do, do very well for herself. And one of the reasons that women were able to marry many times was that they they could keep their inheritance when they remarried. And women had decent inheritance rights in England at this time. Again, that wasn't the case in every other country. But in England, they did have decent inheritance rights and they were also able to maintain those rights. And what we see of the wife of Bath is that she gets a lot of money from her first three husbands. When she falls in love with her fifth husband, she gives up control of the money to him and then she has to get it back, which she does in the end. But we see the absolute disaster that ensues when she gives up the power, the governance over her own money and her own land. So she sees marriage as something in which you should not give up all that power by any means. But yeah, there's lots of really, really interesting women who um, who are able to, to kind of use the fact that they are 
you know, they they are on this in this marriage market. You know, marriage is seen as something economic in in all areas in in many ways. Um, but that doesn't mean that women have to be complete victims of it. Some of these women were in positions where they could take some control over that and make choices and then decide when they didn't want to be married anymore, they could then decide to, you know, take an oath of chastity, for example, and say, that's it. I'm now a widow for the, re- for the rest of my life. I'm not going to go on with this. Now, what you've described in, in those parts of uh, that section are the things that women you know, did ordinarily, they're kind of their, shall we say, traditional uh, roles in uh, medieval English society. But as you explained, Chaucer also goes into what we might think of as the more extraordinary or unusual roles that women play, places where women weren't as common. You describe this, uh, first of all, in terms of women's storytelling, which which is mm-hmm. something that, as you know, you've already explained in terms of English literature, was, was not necessarily a commonplace. Then you also describe women travelers. And, and the fact that Alison of Bath is the only woman uh, among the group of pilgrims is one of the things that makes her uh, you know, stand out. It, one of the many things that makes her stand out in, in Chaucer's tale. But it also is one that speaks to the times where you know, women were not necessarily thought of as, as being you know, ones who journeyed and, 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 and did a lot of uh, voyaging as, as, as she was doing in the novel. So She's not the only woman on the pilgrimage, but she's the only secular woman. So the other women on the pilgrimage are nuns, but she is the only woman who's not a nun on, on the pilgrimage. My apologies. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an important distinction. But, um, but so, again, I think that there's a bit of a gap between the rhetoric about women's travel and the reality of women's travel. So in, in the Middle Ages, um, in Chaucer's time, and for centuries before as well, there's lots of texts which criticise women for travelling, which say that women who travel are only travelling because they want to have sex with lots of men, because they want because they they want to become prostitutes. You know, really appalling things. And you know, one of the really kind of disturbing images that that you you'll have seen in my book is the image of the the vulva brooch, which so pilgrims, male pilgrims, would go on pilgrimage and then buy a brooch which is a, a pilgrim shaped as a vulva with a pilgrim hat and little arms and legs, which, you know, it, it's obviously a very bizarre image. But this badge is supposed to represent the fact that women who travelled were simply genitalia. That is all they were. They were just travelling for sexual opportunities. So it's a really, you know, disgusting, misogynist image. Um, the reality is that there were plenty of, of, of women who were travelling for business reasons, for religious reasons in particular, on pilgrimage, um, for, you know, for, for a range of different purposes. On pilgrimage, they might travel simply within the country, but we also have lots of examples of women who did go to the great pilgrimage sites, so to Santiago de Compostela in Spain, to Rome in Italy, and of course to the, the Holy Land, Jerusalem. Now, not that many people got as far as Jerusalem, but we do have evidence of women who did get that far in the Middle Ages. Um, and a woman who, who I already mentioned, Marjorie Kemp, for example, she travelled all over Europe and to the to the Holy Land and wrote a book about it. So we do we we have this very interesting evidence where she talks about what it was like to travel you know, it was generally people needed to find a group to travel with it wasn't safe to travel on your own um and women who were traveled were in fact often very very frightened of of attack of rape you know rather than seeking um sexual congress they were often at risk of being of being attacked in various ways nonetheless 
many of them did persist in traveling because they did want to have the pilgrimage experience that was such an important and rich part of devotional life for many people at the time. So we do hear of these, you know, intrepid women travelers who who end up all over the 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 known world at the time. So what we have then in that respect is a a, a tale of a woman and and a, and a portrait of a woman who really does exemplify in so many ways and embody in so many ways the life of women in the Middle Ages. And yet, as you descri- start to describe in, in the second section of your book, that that's in some respect, there's almost like a, a resistance or a backlash against that kind of representation. How you describe how in the Middle Ages, there's almost a silencing that takes place in terms of uh, in terms of the character and, and the portrayal of women. Well, and I think that in fact some of the worst silencing has taken place in in more recent times, which will we might go on to talk about. But yeah, I think that as soon as the wife of Bath kind of bursts onto the the literary scene, people are fascinated by her. But it's kind of two sided, you know. On the one hand, we have people being absolutely enthralled by this figure. They cannot leave her alone. Her voice is so powerful. She's so different. People are so interested in her. But at exactly the same time, immediately, a whole range of people are reading about this woman and it makes them extremely anxious. And that's something that has gone on right across time. So the early examples of that are in the the 15th century. So immediately after Chaucer's death, his texts are copied into lots of different manuscripts. And we see that scribes, they tend to write comments next to the tales and prologues. They write a lot more next to the wife of Bath than they do to, to other on other tales and prologues. And some of them write very aggressively, you know, so they contradict her. They, they say, you know, she's wrong about this or, yes, this just shows how women quarrel all the time. And some of these scribes you know, actually misquote the Bible to try to make it seem that she is worse than she is. And as the centuries go on, we find, for instance, that in the in the early 17th century, a, a very popular ballad about her emerged. Uh, well, it emerged in the 16th century, but then in the 17th century, printers are actually put in prison for publishing this ballad. And the ballad was burnt. You know, people were so anxious about texts about the wife of Bath. So I think we have this kind of dance going on across time where people are trying to silence her, but she keeps kind of coming back. And as she comes back, her voice keeps being heard. You know, they try to um, burn the ballads, but there's always too many copies. You know, they always come back. Um, A little bit later, Alexander Pope, um, the writer, for example, he writes a new version of her prologue that is in the early 18th century. And in that version, he takes out all the bits that are about sex or about the body or where she talks about her, her, her own genitals, her quoniam, her chamber of Venus. She refers to having sex with her husband's morning and night. He takes all that out and tries to circulate a more respectable version. But of course, people still read the real long version with which you know has her more authentic voice in it. So we see people trying to silence her, but her voice always ends up being more powerful. And and that gets to uh, one of the points you make in one of my favorite chapters, which is your examination of uh, Chaucer's influence upon Shakespeare and the influence in particular of of the character of Alison in in, in Shakespeare's works, which is how, you know, as much as they try to uh, suppress Alison or or silence Alison, you can't really separate her from Chaucer's work. And so Chaucer's influence, uh, you know, ensures that 
Allison of, of Bath is someone that that writers have to engage with. And I thought that Shakespeare's your description of Shakespeare's engagement with uh, her was especially fascinating in terms of the influence it had upon his many works and his many female characters. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that. Shakespeare was really profoundly influenced by Chaucer in all kinds of ways. And although, you know, many people know that Shakespeare did indeed read Chaucer very carefully, I think in a sense, it's been the extent of Chaucer's influence on Shakespeare is an area that's been a bit neglected because many critics have been more interested in looking at kind of classical sources rather than medieval sources on, on Shakespeare. Um, and I think that so in that in that chapter, and you know, thank you for for saying that it's one of your favorites. I'm really pleased to hear that. You know, one thing that I do is I talk about the way that the wife of Bath influenced the character of Falstaff, and then the second thing that I do is talk about my argument that the wife of Bath's prologue and tale is a direct influence on the Merry Wives of Windsor. So, I mean, Falstaff is Shakespeare's wife of Bath in that these two characters for both authors are you know, their favourite characters, the ones that keep emerging in multiple texts. So you, you, Falstaff comes up in lots of Shakespeare's plays. The wife of Bath keeps popping up in other Canterbury tales and in one of, Cha- and one of um, Chaucer's short poems. Um, both characters at one point seem to die, but then are resurrected. They're both wordsmiths. They use words incredibly powerfully to shape worlds. There's, there's all kinds of connections. But then I also argue that The Merry Wives of Windsor is very directly influenced by both the prologue and the tale. And again, The Merry Wives of Windsor, which was a very popular play a couple of hundred years ago, has been really neglected in the 20th century people and, and the 21st century. And I, I think it's something to reflect on. The audiences haven't been that interested in a Shakespeare play. The only Shakespeare play which is about middle-class, mercantile, older, sexually active women, right? Women very like the wife of Bath. And that's, you know, what we would think of as a kind of a middling class, mercantile woman, someone who's not a beautiful young maiden, someone who's kind of economically astute. That's not a character that's interested people. In contrast, plays such as The Taming of the Shrew have been very popular. You you know, a, a play which is about all kinds of domestic abuse being enacted on 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 women. So, whereas Mary Wives of Windsor, very interesting play about women, you know, emerging on top, women <laughs> you teaching a knight his own place, which is what happens in The Wife of Bath's Tale, where you know, that's a story about a rapist knight who is taught, you know, to think about female desire that he can't have what he feels entitled to which is quite similar to the way that Falstaff is taught not to not to think that he can have the sexual access that he feels he is entitled to in the very wives of Windsor and there's all these parallel scenes you know fairies in woods you know, lots of things which are I think very directly comparable and you know I, I'm I'm really you know I, I've certainly convinced myself and I hope I've convinced you too um, from your reading of the chapter that this is a an, an undiscovered source for for Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor which I think throws a really different light on it but on the play but also I think is very helpful for us to to reflect on why in more recent years you know these this play has not been one that's been very fashionable or of great interest to audiences 
It's especially interesting considering how, you know, it, you know, given how you described it, it's in many respects Shakespeare's most modern play to us today. You think it'd be the one that we'd be most connecting with instead of returning back to these, you know, out, you know, the, these outdated misogynistic representations in these other plays. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a completely fascinating play. Um, but people do remain, you know, much more interested in thinking about young victims such as Juliet, for example, um, rather than these, yeah, the middle-aged woman. I mean, people are not very interested. It's just like, as you, we see a lot in the press these days, which is good that it is being reported, but it's still true, isn't it, that middle-aged women are taken off the news desks and don't, you know, still don't get as many parts in films and so on. Mm-hmm. You describe all as well. Up to now, we've been talking primarily about shape, about uh, the impact of, of, of uh, Alice in the Bath upon uh, English literature. Mm. But as you describe, starting in the 18th century, we, we, we see the influence spreading to uh, you know to to literature in other countries. We, we start to see it appearing in other forms, and, and you talk about how this influence has rippled outward down to the present day. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon the international aspect of of, of the representation of Alice in the Bath and how we see it not just in the writings of, say, someone like Voltaire, but also in the films of uh, Pastolini. Absolutely. Um, so as you say, it was in the 18th century that we first see translations of Chaucer into other European languages. So there's two translations of The Wife of Bath into French in the, the middle of the 18th century. Voltaire it, it writes an incredibly interesting Um, version of her tale and I won't go into all the details but his main interest is in the rapist the rapist knight's erection and that becomes the absolute center of the story um completely transforms the gender politics of the story It's, it's it's amazing and fascinating and disturbing um but that story then becomes the basis for a stage spectacular that was staged all over Europe um A little bit later, we see the wife of Bath getting to the United States. Again, there's a fascinating um, early 20th century play in in the United States. And so it was, first of all, focused on the wife of Bath. It then became the Canterbury Pilgrims, but the wife of Bath is very much the main character. And there's this great advert in in Berkeley in the early 20th century where um, young people are advised to come and see the play so that girls can learn how to catch a man and the male students can and learn, you know, how to resist these um, these tricks to women. But then back in Europe, um, in the 1970s, Pasolini made a film about the Canterbury Tales, which was part of his so-called trilogy of life based on the Decameron, the Arabian Nights, and the Canterbury Tales. So he focuses on a few individual tales. And Pasolini, he really strips away Chaucer's complexity. So the genius of one of the aspects of the genius of the Canterbury Tales is that Chaucer shows the variety of human experience. And that's absolutely fundamental to his art, that he shows different perspectives, different points of view, the idea that you have to try to imagine lots of perspectives. You know, it's not enough just to hear one point of view. So you go to the Canterbury Tales, you can read romance, you can read rude, bawdy, vulgar stories about sex, you can read saints' lives, you can read a prose story, um, you can read all kinds of different things. All Pasolini is interested in is sex. That's all he's interested in. Um, So he chooses to adapt the stories that are focused on sex, and then he takes some stories 
that are not at all about sex in Chaucer's version and puts in completely gratuitously um, gay brothel scenes, for example, um, some really quite explicit and disturbing sexual acts. In So he really focuses on this very limited aspect of Chaucer. And in terms of the wife of Bath, he makes the wife of Bath into an absolutely you know, monstrous figure. He takes away her funniness, her vitality. One of the most important aspects of the wife of Bath is that she's life-affirming. You know, she, she gets knocked down, but she keeps coming back, you know, literally and metaphorically. She embraces life. She doesn't get discouraged. She's funny and amusing, and she's interested in things. Pasolini makes her a figure of death. So for Pasolini, the older sexually active woman is a figure of death. And I mean that entirely literally. So he depicts sex with her as actually killing her fourth husband. And her fifth husband um, is not sexually interested in her. And the wife of Bath bites his nose, which is often used in lots of texts as a symbol of castration. So she's she's a monster in his film. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating is that we see some of the most misogynist depictions of the wife of Bath in the 20th century. Back in the 15th century, as I've said, scribes were anxious about her rhetorical power. They wanted to counter her voice. But in the 20th century, we see a lot more of this really misogynistic focus on her body, her sexuality, on trying to to make her into something quite, quite deathly. You know, there are plays that make her into a rapist figure, that make her into into a murderess. And we also see that in some in some Chaucer criticism, which pretends that she murders her husbands. It's it's it, it's really disturbing. And I think it's a good reminder to us that um history does not always get better. You know, when we look back on t- uh, when we look back across time in any in any kind of area, we don't see a steady march of progress. Of course, when we look at some aspects of of life, we see some some improvements, sometimes things that get dramatically better, some slow progress, but we also see things at times getting worse. You know, I I think we can all see things today that are worse compared to 30, 50 years ago, for example. In the final two chapters of your book, you engage with the representation of uh, Allison and the influence of Allison upon modern literature. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more, uh, starting with the novels, because I, I thought it was interesting, particularly as, as you mentioned with like James Joyce, how she, how uh, we think of Joyce as a classicist, and yet as you point out, you know he's he was very influenced by medieval literature, and you, we can see the influence of of uh, Chaucer's tale uh, in his work as well. Absolutely. And, you know, when I started researching this book, I knew there'd be lots of material, but I had no idea how much I was going to find. And it just became that any author that I started looking into, I would find all kinds of of stuff about the wife of Bob, you know, usually very obvious stuff, not a kind of, oh, this is a bit like, but actual, oh, I'll look at Ted Hughes. Oh, look, here he has a poem all about the wife of Bath, where he explicitly says <laughs> that the wife of Bath is Sylvia Plath's favourite character and then depicts her as the wife of Bath. You know, everywhere I turned, there she was. Um, James Joyce, as you say, I, I had not realised what a passionate medievalist he was until I was researching this book. And I think mostly people don't know that because I think for, for, for many people, you know, the clues in the name, you know, Ulysses, he's, he's a classicist. But actually, he was very, very interested in Chaucer. He wrote a lot about the medieval. He talked about the fecundity and richness of the medieval period. Um, 
And Molly Bloom is a really interesting version of the wife of Bath. But one of the things that I was particularly thinking about when I started thinking about novels was that once the wife of Bath starts jumping into novels, she's going into essentially silent forms. Now, when Chaucer was writing, most texts were read aloud. And in fact, even if you were on your own, you would usually read aloud. You know, silent reading was not very common. But but mostly you would be reading in groups anyway. So you'd be listening to texts in a group. And mostly across time, the wife of Bath has been rewritten in in plays or in ballads you know in performative texts and her voice is so important that that really makes sense but I think that novelists often found ways to make her voice come through um, even in this silent form and James Joyce is, is you know a master at doing that in his use of extraordinarily you know breathless long sentences in the in the power that he invests into voices through his formal experimentation um there are other novels in the 20th century which are i think less less successful versions of of alison um and then of course in more recent years she's gone back into into performance texts which is, is what i talk about in the in the last chapter I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, elaborate a bit upon that and, and talk about that it, it, that uh, those appearances, especially when you, as you focus in it, you're describing how a more multi-national, uh, multicultural uh, English literature is beginning to engage with this very traditional, very historically English character in, in, in ways that that just show you know how she's so relevant today. Absolutely. Um, so. My final chapter focuses particularly on three black British writers, but it is important to say that I also talk a bit about other writers from um, from the African diaspora around the world. So I also talk, for example, about um, American poets, including Marilyn Nelson, for example. Um, but my three, the three main authors that I talk about are Jean Binterbreeze, Patience Agbagby, and Zadie Smith. So these are are British writers who have all written explicit versions of The Wife of Bath. And you can see Jean Binterbreeze, her, ver- her version is on YouTube, The, the Wife of Bath in, in Brixton Market. Jean Binterbreeze was, a, was a, a woman of Caribbean origin who came in the Windrush, so the generation, so the, the second half of the, of the 20th century, to the UK. Um, Patience Agbagbi is a Nigerian-British author writing today, um, and Zadie Smith is a, a British author also of, of Caribbean origin. And, I mean, I think it's really interesting that The Wife of Bath has been reimagined as a, as a woman from from different kinds of backgrounds. So in Zadie Smith's play, The Wife of Bath is a North, is a woman from Northwest London, but with a with a Jamaican background. The story that she tells is, is the same story, but it's no longer set in Arthurian Britain. Instead, it's set in, in Jamaica, in 18th century Jamaica, in a world of, um, of the Maroons, so the freed slaves, the plantations, and so on. And what I think is really important about this, I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of debates, a lot of discussion at the moment about, about British history, about the way that slavery is taught about or not taught, about people's understanding about, about our history. Something like this play really demonstrates, I think, that the history of 18th century Jamaica is relevant to all British people, just like the myths about 
the Arthurian origins of Britain are also relevant to all British people, you know, black and white. You know, we are all implicated, no matter when our ancestors, you know, came to these islands, and we are a nation of of immigrants, you know, right across time. Um, of course we are. Um, but there's lots of different histories that are that are relevant. And that that comes across very clearly, I think, in these texts. I think the wife of Bath is a figure that has fast. I mean, of course, different authors will be fascinated by her for different reasons. But when we're looking at her, she is a she is a figure that seems to speak to people from lots of different cultural backgrounds. Um, she's also, of course, you, you know, from a from a world that is that was multicultural, although people don't tend to think that, you know, there are some people who want to put forward an idea of a Middle Ages that was, was all, all white, and that, and in which immigration didn't exist. Now, I've written at length about this in the past, the fact that Chaucer lived in a very multicultural world, he was multilingual, he was involved in trade, he lived in a part of London that had more immigrants in it than any other part of London. And the wife of Bath, is the medieval wife of Bath is very much in that multilingual, multicultural world where she too is is traveling around, is aware of different languages, is working in the cloth trade, you know, which is something which um, involved all kinds of import and, and export. So I think reclaiming the wife of Bath, reclaiming Chaucer for people, not only for white people, for people from different backgrounds, really emphasizes the fact that the past should not be be colonized by a racist agenda you know that the past belongs to everyone hmm. well we take uh, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us but before we go could you tell us what you're working on now yeah so um i'm working on on, on a few different things um, i'm going to be i'm going to be curating an exhibition about chaucer next year in the bodleian library here in oxford it's going to be called chaucer here and now and look at chaucer right across time I'm also writing another book, which is about why we read fiction right across time, why people are interested in fiction. Um, And I'm also, of course, spending quite a lot of time doing this kind of thing and trying to talk to people about this book, which is a real pleasure for me. So I, I really appreciate your time and the time of all the listeners that have got this far. Well, I really appreciate the time you take to speak with us, and I, and I do hope that many people read it because it's such a fascinating book that you know dem- that you know demonstrates just how influential the character is across so much of li- modern literature. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think it was a way really of talking about all kinds of issues going right across time. You know, it's, in some ways, it's, it's almost like a history of women for six hundred years, <laughs> and also of literature. Um, it's a nice little lens that just let me do lots of different things. Well, Mary, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. It was my pleasure.